This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN Columbia.
Good evening, this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. Mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, music of the world. More than radio, it's community radio, listener-sponsored community radio. And you're listening to it tonight, KOPN 89.5 FM. And uh, hey, good to be with you. It's Mike, and it's Monday night, 11 until 2, Radio Orbit for the next three hours. And got a fun show an interesting show lined up for everybody tonight. And let me tell you a little bit about what we're going to do. Jeremy Narby, one of my favorite authors, uh, he's an anthropologist, uh, a Ph.D. anthropologist from Stanford University, the author of uh, a couple of books, actually more than, more than that, but two in particular that we're going to talk about tonight, but uh, probably won't dwell on the books too much knowing Jeremy. But anyway... Uh, he wrote uh, the first book that I read from Jeremy, Jeremy Narby was called The Cosmic Serpent DNA and the Origins of Knowledge and it's a fascinating book and uh, a great contribution to the study of shamanism and the rediscovery of shamanism in the West and Jeremy Narby making a wonderful contribution to that uh, pool of knowledge so anyway Jeremy's going to be with us in about 45 minutes or so. We're not going to do a full show with Jeremy. He only has about a half an hour, 45 minutes to spend with us today. We'll hopefully spend uh, a greater length of time with him in the future. But uh, we'll take as much as we can get from him this evening. And I have some other things lined up for uh, later on in the show. So anyway, uh, that's coming up. Actually, the guys from Yachai, or at least uh, uh, Jeff... I'm not sure if William's going to be with him, but uh, if you've listened to the show before, you're familiar with the uh, the band uh, musicians Yachai uh, from uh, out of Phoenix, Arizona, but uh, uh, influenced by uh, some wonderful people down in Peru. Anyway, I'm going to have Jeff on the air, at least Jeff, maybe Jeff and William, and we'll be playing some of their music and talking with them a little bit about some new things that are happening with their career and uh, in uh in South America. So that's coming up probably after Jeremy's on the air, and we'll do space weather in just a little while. We've got uh, a nice piece that I'm going to read from Dennis McKenna before I bring Jeremy on the air. And what else? A couple stories uh, I need to talk about. Of course, uh, do a quick thank you to Debbie. Debbie Johnson doing free range radio theater every Monday at 10 o'clock, an hour before. Radio Orbit, uh, Debbie's on the air doing the, uh, the wonderful series from Homer right now. And uh, before that, Jason and Kevin, or Kelvin, uh, doing jazz plus blues equals soul. Boogeyman coming up after me at 2, and we'll just roll on through from now. Thanks for the nice emails. Uh, hello to everybody listening over the web. Uh, as I've said a couple times previously in the last few shows, website improvements coming up really quickly. Actually, a lot of changes coming up with the show, hopefully. Maybe, maybe not. We'll have to see. Uh, but uh, lots of things, sort of irons in the fire, as they say. Uh, some people coming up on the show tonight, of course, Jeremy Narby and the guys from Yachai. Next week is Vincent Bridges. Uh, you've heard me speak about Vincent. Uh, he was the co-author of A Monument to the End of Time with Jay Widener. And Jay's been on the program before, and in fact, we'll be on the program again in the next couple of months, but uh, Vincent, another amazingly intelligent guy with a wonderful background of uh, uh, learning and experience and knowledge about 
the esoteric, I guess is the best way to put it. But Vince will be on the show next week, and we'll talk about not only their book, but uh, some of the current things that are going on. He he was really excited to be on the show uh, next Monday because apparently, and he didn't he didn't uh, allude too much about what he was talking about, but apparently there's some sort of astronomical alignment that begins next uh, next Monday, the 3rd of October, and uh, carries on for the next week or so. So anyway, he's going to be talking about that uh, alignment in particular. Apparently it ties into uh, some of the concepts and ideas that are presented in his books uh, and, the, and the work that he's done with Jay. So Vincent Bridges coming up next week. Uh, Paradise Newland, pretty soon. Not sure when her and I are going to do this show. I got an email from Paradise today, and we were sort of uh, trying to decide where and when was the best time to do it. We may have to tape this one, actually, because of time constraints. But anyway, that's coming up. Lucy Pringle from England. We'll be talking about crop formations. That's coming up soon. John Lash and uh, Joanna Harcourt-Smith, probably not on the same program, but talking to both of them soon. I mentioned last week briefly that... Uh, there is a conference that's being held the 14th, 15th, and 16th of October. Actually, there are two conferences. The, uh, the, the primary conference actually is in California, and it's the Bioneers Conference. It's an annual show. Uh, actually, not a show. I shouldn't say that. But anyway, it's an, it's an annual gathering of uh, all kinds of different people, uh, but uh, presenting different ideas and... Um, ways forward that might be helpful uh, to the people of planet Earth uh, as we move into a sort of strange territory uh, ahead of us here. So anyway, that's called the Bioneers, and Bioneers has been around for about 15 or 16 years. And I think it's headed by a woman whose name is Nina Simons, uh, or Nina Simon. I want to say Nina Simons, actually. Anyway, uh, I think that uh, Nina Simons still runs Bioneers, and she's a pretty interesting woman uh, herself. And there is this year, for the first time, a sister conference that's being held in Massachusetts at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth campus. And it is uh, sort of going on in coincidence with the California conference. It will be going the same days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, the 14th, 15th, and 16th of October. And I'll be out there at the Massachusetts conference, and it's going to be linked up with the California uh, gathering via satellite, and it's a webcast and a podcast and all this sort of stuff. And anyway, uh, Joanna and I will be sort of hosting the events, and uh, we'll be interviewing a lot of the different speakers and guests that will be rolling through there over those three days. And there's a whole lot of interesting people and uh, and topics that will be covered during that time. And then when I come back, I'll probably talk about a lot of that stuff on the air for a little while. And in fact, I'll probably, uh, Joanna and I have talked about coming on the air maybe a week or two afterwards uh, to discuss some of the highlights and uh, things that were uh, discussed and uh, realized at the conference in Massachusetts. So anyway, I'm really looking forward to that. It's a great opportunity to network as well, to find some other people that we might bring on the program here and also an opportunity maybe to uh, to uh, move forward my own personal agenda. You know, we all have an agenda and I don't hide that and mine is just to 
to get the radio program to reach more people. And so I just want to keep trying to do that. And the way to do that is just to make the show better and to keep talking to interesting and fun uh, people. So anyway, more of that stuff coming up, as always, and I hope uh, you're enjoying it. Uh, that's why uh, we have the email address and the telephone so you can voice your opinion to me. You can always get a hold of me at orbitradio at aol.com, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O at aol.com, orbitradio at aol.com. And the website, of course, is... Um, uh, Radio Orbit, R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T dot com. And the phone number here at the station, in the studio, 443, uh, I take that back, 573-874-5676, uh, 1-800-895-5676 if you're outside of the area code here of 573. And we may open up the phones uh, after I talk to Jeremy to see what you guys thought about it and if you have any questions or ideas or things you want to talk about. Um, you can call at 443-8255, and that's area code 573-443-8255. All right, let's play a little bit of music here. We'll come back. We'll do space weather, and I'll talk about a couple things that I wanted to talk about, a couple stories that I found that were sort of relevant to uh, the topics of the evening. And then at the top of the hour, we'll uh, get together with Jeremy Narby, um, maybe even before the top of the hour, as soon as I can get him on the phone here. And he'll be talking to us live from his home in Switzerland. So as always, we'll uh, uh, say a quick prayer to the technology gods and hope that we can make a nice, clean connection with Jeremy there in uh, Switzerland. They're about six or seven hours ahead of us right now as well. So anyway, all that's coming up. In the meantime, let's listen to a little bit of music and we'll come back and do space weather, I guess. Let's see. What are we doing here? This is... You know, I played a couple songs by the Foo Fighters uh, from their new CD uh, a couple weeks ago, and I found some other stuff off, that, off of it that I like a lot. So this is more from uh, the Foo Fighters. This one's called Virginia Moon. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia. We'll be back in just a few minutes, and I'll talk to you then.
Alright, cool stuff there from the Foo Fighters. This is Mike, you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia. That was Virginia Moon from their latest. Alright, it is about 21 after, 22 after the hour of 11 o'clock, and this is uh, Radio Orbit on Monday night. Uh, Let's see, let's do space weather. Alright. Actually, let me say something real fast. Uh, Rita, of course, uh, we've had these two... Uh, large hurricanes that have come in the Gulf of Mexico in the last couple, three weeks. And if you remember, if you listened to the show back in June when Scott Stevens was on the air, and I should mention something about Scott, actually. Uh, uh, he actually quit his job, or he or, or they quit him. I'm not sure what the actual story is, but as you know, he was the, the, the anchor man, uh, the weather anchor man for KPVI, the NBC affiliate a television station in Pocatello, Idaho, and he's a and he's a he's a well-known uh, sort of local ce- uh, celebrity there. He's been on the on the television in front of everybody in their face for many many years. So, anyway, his departure is pretty interesting. So, uh, Scott quit his job, or as I say, they quit him. The, the article in the paper was pretty interesting about uh, about how they split up. But I haven't spoken to Scott since the. Uh, since he quit his job, but I did speak with him just a couple of weeks ago, and he, and, and anyway, he's pursuing uh, these ideas of his uh, pretty pretty strongly. And my position on Scott stuff uh, is is sort of like, well, he's a web, he he's a meteorologist, and what he has to say about the weather, I'm very interested in. I listen to. Uh, I've learned a great deal from him about the sky and about uh, what I'm looking at when I look up in the sky. And he's taught me how to recognize things that are uh, anomalous and things that uh, don't happen naturally. And I've learned a lot from him when it comes to uh, to observing uh, weather and phenomenon in the sky. Uh, that doesn't... Because I respect him as a meteorologist, uh, I can keep that separate from my views uh, on his geopolitical uh, assumptions or positions. And, you know, uh, Scott has his ideas about what he thinks is going on and who's uh, behind some of these things that he talks about. But as far as that stuff goes, I really... um, you know, I'd let him have his opinion. He's welcome to it. Uh, I'm more interested in, in what he has to say about meteorology. And uh, that alone is enough to make me uh, consider other things. But anyway, uh, Scott ha- and others, many others now, are talking about weather manipulation and talking about modification of weather systems 
and openly talking about the fact that Katrina and Rita, these two giant hurricanes that have just uh, just uh, encountered the United States and the Gulf uh, Gulf Coast region over the last few weeks, uh, they Scott and others are openly claiming that these storms were manipulated. And again, uh, you know, take that for what it's worth. But uh, there are a lot of people talking about this. And in fact, weather modification and manipulation is something that's actually been going on for quite some time. And there's a huge uh, uh, record uh, in again in the public record. It's amazing. Most of the stuff is right, right there. You just have to go dig it out and find it. But um, there's been quite a bit of research done on this stuff by just some sleuths out there. Uh, since the whole thing kind of gained steam a few months ago, but uh, there are huge documented lists now of uh, um, military white papers and uh, patents and government projects and all kinds of things uh, that uh, that go way back to the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and up to the current day. In fact, there's a bill in Congress right now, uh, the weather mo- uh, the weather modification uh, committee. Act of 2005 or whatever the hell it's called um, that a lot of people are talking about and I think I probably talked about on this show probably before anybody else was started or at least most other people were, were talking about it Kent Steadman and I talked about it many months ago in, uh, in, in May or June so anyway the stuff is going on and uh, I think that's been pretty much agreed upon by even a lot of experts uh, and a lot of Scott's peers, actually, in meteorology are saying, yeah, something very strange is happening. But uh, as to who's behind it and what's really going on, I don't know. Uh, but uh, Scott said in June, watch the Gulf of Mexico. Watch the Gulf of Mexico. It's exactly what he said. And you can go to my archives and listen to that interview from June 20th and hear it with your own ears uh, at RadioOrbit.com. You don't have to pay anything. Just go there and listen to the show. And you'll hear Scott talk all about what he thought was going to happen with hurricanes this year. And it was quite prophetic, actually, in hindsight now. So, anyway, uh, I just thought I'd mention that uh, uh, the best place to sort of follow up on some of this stuff is CyberspaceOrbit.com. That's Kent Stedman's site, and he's sort of my uh, partner in crime, so to speak. But, uh, anyway, Kent's uh, done a lot of uh, consolidation of some of this research, and it's all up on the front page right now at Orbit. So... Uh, check that out at www.cyberspaceorbit.com. All right. All right. Uh, big giant solar prominence. Uh, you can see if you get on the web and go over to spaceweather.com or space.com or even go over to orbit right now. Um, just today there are uh, monitoring, monitoring a gigantic solar prominence, one of the largest that's been imaged in a long, long time. Uh, some of the people who are looking at this thing have said, um, yesterday, uh, when it began, uh, it was, it's making like an arc. We're, we're right here in the, uh, the gateway to the west, and we have the, the, the St. Louis Arch that's in the city to the east of us. And uh, this prominence did exactly that. It made a big arch on the, on the surface of the sun. Uh, but something, just to give you an idea of perspective, that the earth uh, could easily have flown right through uh, the center of the arch uh, that that this prominence is making on the sun right now. So, anyway, what a prominence is is a big cloud, basically, of uh, hydrogen gas, and it sort of holds its form 
uh, with help of the magnetic field of the sun. And prominences can, uh, can hold their form for a long time. Uh, this one has gone on for a number of days. And sometimes they explode and sometimes they just sort of dissipate. Uh, but uh, if, you have a, if you have a telescope with a reasonably uh, uh, decent filter, uh, a safe filter for looking at the sun, you can see it with your own, uh, with your own eyes. So, uh, and if you want to see some good images, go, go down there to spaceweather.com and you can see some stuff there. There's some great imagery that some of the uh, some amateur uh, astronomers have taken and posted up there at the site. So, uh, One other thing of sort of note uh, for astronomers, if you've got your telescopes out, take a look at Mars. You'll, you'll notice that it's wintertime uh, approaching on Mars and the, uh, the seasons are changing. The North Pole uh, is starting to look very icy and blue, and it's a pretty cool sight, actually. And Mars is actually still reasonably cl- uh, close to Earth. And if you get a clear night uh, on, an, on a good opportunity to view the planet Mars, take a look at it, you'll see this uh, big, giant cloud bank on the northern part of the planet that just makes it sort of a whitish blue, and it's very pretty. All right, so uh, tonight, Jeremy Narby. Coming up in uh, between 15 and uh, 30 minutes, I guess. And we'll play a little bit more music. I'm going to try to get uh, a couple other things. I actually have a story that I wanted to read you that I forgot in the car. And I want to go out and get it. And I also have a nice piece from Dennis McKenna that I'm going to read before the, uh, before the end of the... Uh, uh, the first hour here before we bring Jeremy on the program. So, anyway, let's listen to something else here. This is, oh, I don't know. What are we going to play here? Something that has to do with, uh, all right, we're talking about shamanism tonight. And, you know, uh, there's something about the body. And there's a lot of talk these days about out-of-body experiences and leaving the body and uh, being... Uh, escaping from the body, but, you know, the body is our vehicle in which we experience our world, our planet. It's the way that we experience it. All of our senses are directed through our body. And, uh, yeah, sometimes it's fun to get away from that, but at the same time, that's where we live. And we have to return there as well. This is Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia. We'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Bush.
Scott's body and bush on, uh, from 16 Stone Radio Orbit KOPN Columbia. This is Mike, and it is about 11:35. All right, a couple things real quick here. Uh, first off, the website www.radioorbit.com. R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T.com. Phone number here uh, in the station 573-874-5676. 1-800-895-KOPN. All right, uh, here's a story from uh, SPX News from Los Angeles. The sun has a binary partner that may affect the Earth. While the findings uh, in Lost Star are controversial, astronomers now agree that most stars are likely part of a binary or multiple star system. The groundbreaking and... uh, the groundbreaking and richly illustrated new book, Lost Star of Myth and Time, marries modern astronomical theory with ancient star lore to make a compelling case for the profound influence on our planet of a companion star to the sun. Author and theorist Walter Cruttenden presents the evidence that this binary orbit relationship may be the cause of a vast cycle causing the dark and golden ages common in the lore of ancient cultures. Uh, The phenomenon known as precession of the equinox, fabled as a marker of time by ancient peoples, uh, according to Cruttenden, is not due to local wobbling of the earth as modern theory pretends, uh, but to the solar system's gentle curve through space. This movement of the solar system occurs because the sun has a companion star, and both stars orbit a common center of gravity, as is typical of most double star systems. The grand cycle, the time it takes to complete one orbit, is called a great year, something that was co- uh, a term that was coined by Plato, actually. While the findings in Lost Star are controversial, astronomers now agree that most stars are likely to be part of a binary or multiple star system. Dr. Richard A. Muller, professor of physics at UC Berkeley and research physicist at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, is an earthly <laughs> is an early proponent proponent. Uh, of a companion star to our sun. He prefers a 26-million-year orbit uh, as opposed to Cruttenden, who uses a 24,000-year orbit and says the change in angular direction can be seen in the precession of the equinoxes. The lost star, Myth and Time, expands on the author's award-winning PBS documentary, The Great Year, narrated by James Earl Jones, The book brings intriguing new evidence to the theory of our binary companion star and an age-old mystery, the procession of the equinox. Uh, So, yeah, again, uh, lots of questions about even the most uh, general ideas about our planet and our solar system and the local environment in which we live. Now, there's another story that I want to read here uh, that comes from... Scientific American, and it's written by Alexander Hellman, and it's titled A Force to Reckon With, What Applied the Brakes on Pioneer 10 and 11. And for those of you, again, who have listened to the program uh, over uh, the last uh, few months or so, you've probably heard me mention the Pioneer Anomaly. This is a physical uh, problem uh, that's been presented to astrophysicists since uh, the signals and the speeds of the Maser communication uh, beacons that are sent to Earth from the Pioneer probes uh, were not uh, in the frequency where they were supposed to be. And I'm going to read the story really quickly here. 
says, one of the most intriguing mysteries in physics is the Pioneer Anomaly, the slowing down of two spacecraft by an unknown force. NASA launched Pioneer 10 and 11 in 1972 and 1973, respectively, and the craft returned stunning images of Jupiter and Saturn. But as both spacecraft continued their voyages at speeds of roughly 27,000 miles an hour, astronomer John Anderson of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, noticed anomalies in telemetry dating back as far as 1980. With continued analysis, researchers determined that the spacecraft had been slowing down at a constant rate. Each year they fell 8,000 miles short of their calculated positions. The strange behavior sparked several theories, but the lack of data made culling the ideas difficult. Now a proposal to analyze telemetry from the early years could literally point toward the correct explanation. Well, uh, I don't have a lot of time to go into this, but the correct explanation... Uh, was given by Dr. Paul Laviolette in 1979. His novel, Physics Theory, Subquantum Kinetics, uh, accurately predicted uh, that this would happen. And, uh, in fact, in 1979, the numbers that he predicted uh, came within about uh, two sigma uh, two standard deviations from the actual observed data that was uh, that was collected many years later. So, anyway, if you're interested in that, uh, you can uh, find out more about Dr. Paul Laviolette either from my site or at etheric.com, E-T-H-E-R-I-C.com. All right, this is Mike, and I'm going to put on some music from Yachai, and we'll let this play a little bit while I get Dr. Narby on the phone here, and we'll come back in just a few minutes and talk with Dr. Jeremy Narby, anthropologist extraordinaire from Stanford University, uh, living and working in Switzerland, and uh, a guy who I've been looking forward to talking to for a long time. So that's coming up in just a few minutes. We'll be back then. In the meantime, once again, Yachai Music, and we'll be talking to Jeff from Yachai uh, after uh, the Jeremy Narby interview in just a little while. So stick around for that. In the meantime, here's a sample of what you'll hear later. I'm a part so I am Prison blast, sea void of me. Yeah. 
Yachai, Yachai music uh, from Sweet Mother Mercy. And we'll be talking to Jeff from Yachai after uh, our talk with Dr. Jeremy Narvi, which is coming up in just a few minutes here. I'm going to read something really quickly here, uh, just as sort of a setup. But I want to get uh, to Dr. Narvi as quickly as we can because uh, we're sort of limited uh, with time, uh, or for time, I should say, with... uh, with Jeremy this morning. So anyway, as you all know, uh, Dennis McKenna is a friend and someone who's been on the program before and someone who I respect greatly. And he wrote a paper that was presented at the uh, first conference on shamanism in Iquitos, Peru, just recently, a couple, couple, three months ago. And I was sort of lamenting something via email to him a few months ago, uh, the the, the outline, the direct outline of of, uh, psilocybin mushrooms uh, in England, in the United Kingdom, and he wrote me an email back and said, uh, you know, sort of take heart and don't don't sweat it too badly. And he included this uh, this paper, which has now been published, and he said it was okay for me to read it on the air. So I'm just going to uh, read a couple of uh, little pieces uh, from this right now. And it has to do with this uh, this combinatory hallucinogenic concoction that is uh, consumed by shamans and others in uh, uh, South America and, and in indigenous cultures in many parts of the world and 
uh, in particular in South America, uh, South America, uh, in certain areas at least, it's it's called ayahuasca. And uh, uh, Dennis writes the story of ayahuasca and our evolving understanding of its place in the world and of its significance for medicine, pharmacology, ethnobotany, and shamanic studies is far from over. And in fact, it may have just begun. I would like to believe that this is the case. But for the purposes of this contribution, rather than submit yet another dense and lengthy review on botany, chemistry, pharmacology, etc. of ayahuasca, I have chosen to adopt a broader perspective and to indulge in some reflections and speculations on the past and future of ayahuasca of the sort that a scientist probably mercifully rarely shares with his colleagues or the larger world. To those readers who may wish for a more uh, usual nuts and bolts approach to the subject, I call attention to my recent review uh, of publications in the Journal of Pharmacology and Therapeutic, uh, Therapeutics, McKenna, 2004. On a personal level, ayahuasca has been, for me, both a scientific and a professional continuing carrot and a plant teacher and guide of incomparable wisdom, compassion, and intelligence. My earliest encounters with ayahuasca were experiential. Only later did it become an object of scientific curiosity sparked in part by a desire to understand the mechanism, the machineries that might underlie the profound experiences that it elicited. As a young man just getting started in the field of ethnopharmacology, ayahuasca seemed to me more than worthy of a lifetime of scientific study, and so it has proven to be. Pursuing an understanding of ayahuasca has led to many exotic places that I would never have visited otherwise, from the jungles of the Amazon basin to the laboratory complexes of the National Institute of Mental Health and Stanford. It has led to the formation of warm friendships and fruitful collaborations with many colleagues who have shared my curiosity about the mysteries of this curious plant complex. These collaborations, and more importantly, these friendships continue, as does the quest for understanding. Though there have been detours along the way, always and inevitably, they have led back to the central quest. Often after the fact, I have seen how those apparent detours were not so far off the path after all as they supplied some insight, some skill, or some experience that in hindsight proved necessary to the furtherance of the quest. Just as ayahuasca has been for me personally something of a holy grail as it has been for many others, I have the intuition that it may have a similar role with respect to our entire species. Anyone who has personally experienced with ayahuasca is aware that it has much to teach us and there is incredible wisdom and intelligence there. Suddenly, literally out of the Amazon, one of the most impacted parts of our wounded planet, ayahuasca emerges as an emissary of trans-species sentience to bring this lesson. You monkeys only think you're running things. In a wider sense, the import of this lesson is that we need to wake up to what is happening to us and to the planet. We need to get with the program, people. We have become spiritually bereft and have been seduced by the delusion that we are somehow important in the scheme of things. We are not. Our spiritual institutions have devolved into hollow shells perverted to the agendas of rapacious governments and fanatic fundamentalisms no longer capable of providing balm to the wounded spirit of our species. And as the world goes up in flames, we benumb ourselves with consumerism and mindless entertainment. The decadent distractions of gadgets and gijaws, the frantic but ultimately meaningless pursuits of a civilization that has lost its compass. And in the cusp of this inhuman history, 
there emerges a gentle emissary, the conduit to a body of profound ancient genetic and evolutionary wisdom that has long abided in the cosmologies of the indigenous peoples of the Amazon and who have guarded and protected this knowledge for millennia. It may be too late. I have no illusions about this, given that the certain given that the curtain is now being run down on the drunken misadventure that we call human history, the death culture will inevitably become more brutal and insane, flailing ever, ever more violently as it sinks beneath the quicksands of time. Indeed, it is already happening. All you have to do is turn on the nightly news. Will ayahuasca survive? I have no doubt that ayahuasca will survive on this planet as long as the planet remains able to sustain life. The human time frame is measured in years, sometimes centuries, rarely in millennia. Mere blinks when measured against the evolutionary timescales of planetary life, the scale on which ayahuasca wields its influence. It will be here long after the governments, religions, and political power structures that seem today so permanent and so menacing have dissolved into dust. It will be here long after our ephemeral species has been reduced to anomalous sediment in the fossil record. The real question is will we be here long enough to hear its message, to integrate what it is trying to tell us, and to change in response before it's too late. Ayahuasca has the same message for us now that it has always had, since the beginning of its symbiotic relationship with humanity. Are we willing to listen? Only time will tell. All right, uh, that, as I said, is a piece from Dr. Dennis McKenna, and we'll be right back in just a f- couple of minutes here with Dr. Jeremy Narby to talk about ayahuasca and shamanism and intelligence in nature and anything else that uh, we decide to talk about in the next little while. All right, uh, let's do one more real quick one here. Okay, here's uh, Brian Eno, just another day. Back in a few minutes, this is Mike, you're listening to Radio Orbit. Stick around in just a couple seconds here. We'll bring uh, Dr. Jeremy Narby on the air, uh, anthropologist uh, from Stanford University. Just another day on earth. Oh, it's just another. 
to Radio Orbit with Mike Hagan on KOPN 89.5 FM. That's right, this is Mike and you listen to Radio Orbit on KOPN, Columbia 89.5 FM. All right, uh, my guest is a PhD anthropologist and... Uh, I think he was born in Switzerland. Anyway, he lives in Switzerland right now. Uh, he is an author of a number of books. I mentioned a couple of them earlier, uh, Cosmic Serpent and Intelligence in Nature. Uh, in the mid-80s, while doing work in uh, the Peruvian rainforest, uh, he became interested in uh, how some of his guides who, uh, knew so much about the indigenous plants that were all around them and uh, Dr. Narby was informed quite simply that the plants themselves were telling uh, the humans how to use them and giving information directly to human beings through the drinking of a concoction that was called ayahuasca and uh, we've talked about that on this program before and many of you are familiar with the, uh, the concoction uh, at any rate, our guest tonight, Dr. Narby, uh, became very interested in it, and uh, uh, it became sort of uh, 
the the springboard for the rest, uh, or at least uh, the work that he's done uh, up to this point in his life. Uh, his two books, The Cosmic Serpent and Intelligence in Nature, are both wonderful and important contributions to our uh, knowledge in the West of shamanism, sort of a rediscovery of uh, knowledge and information that have been lost to our culture. And uh, without further ado, I'm very pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Jeremy Narby. Thanks so much for being here with us tonight. How are you? Sure, I'm fine. Sure, it's a pleasure. Great. Well, uh, I guess um, my first question, uh, Dr. Narby, would be how did a guy with, with an orthodox training in, in anthropology from one of the sort of establishment's favorite institutions, that being Stanford University, get involved with something that was, at least, at least in the mid-80s, as, as obscure as shamanism. And could you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this to begin with? Yeah. Um, well, uh, actually, just to set the record straight, I was born in Canada, but I moved okay. to Switzerland when I was 10 All right. and uh, grew up here. Um, and um, the truthful answer to your question is that um, LSD is an indigenous molecule here in Switzerland. It was invented here about 60 years ago. Sorry. So when I was in my late teens, I tried it uh, several times. And, but just as a, um, a private individual, not as an anthropologist or as a researcher. Okay. And so I had some experience with um, hallucinogenic substances. Um, but then I turned my back on that because that was um, it was pretty difficult, I found, to, to reconcile um, that kind of uh, experience with a um, serious academic uh, career. And I ended up... At Stanford, which is a well, pretty serious place, and mm-hmm. going to the library for uh, six and a half days a week for several years and such, and then ended up down in the Amazon doing my field work just like a an ordinary anthropologist, and I was interested in in very material things, mm-hmm. namely the um, land rights of um, an Indian tribe in the Peruvian Amazon, and what was in question was the um, uh, well, the territory being taken away from these people uh, in the name of development by such entities as the Inter-American Development Bank and the World Bank and so on. Mm-hmm. So this is pretty concrete, non-spiritual, non-shamanistic stuff. Right. Um, <clears throat> but it turned out that um, as I started looking into how the uh, Ashaninka people used their resources, the, the point for doing this was to argue against the development banks that were saying that in Indians don't know how to use resources rationally and so confiscating their territories is economically justified. Hmm. I wanted to argue the contrary and you can already see the signature there of um, well, the the desire to um, do something different um, and to shake things up a little bit but um, not by embracing shamanism, right. just by uh, using reason and argumentation to to try to um, well, change the world a little bit. Okay. Um, because there was clearly a, a problem going on here. Um, territories were being taken away from people who'd lived there for thousands of years, and then the, the trees were all being cut down, and this was called development. So something was, was out of whack, essentially. Right. Um, so 
I started looking into how Ashaninka Indians use their resources, and they were the ones who started pointing towards ayahuasca and saying, well, the, the way we, we understand plants and animals and how to use them and how to relate to them is we have shamans who use these plants here and can actually communicate with other species. And, and that was a, a contradiction to what I was trying to prove. And, um, you know, as a, as, a, as a private individual, I could say, or out of curiosity, I, I certainly didn't really consider it part of my research. But um, after running into that explanation several times and, and having uh, Ashaninka people saying, well, look, you know, if you, if you want to understand uh, how we understand nature, you have to drink some ayahuasca. Okay. Um, I thought, well, hmm, all right, I've tried LSD before, and, you know, I know all about this stuff. Uh, sure, Friday night, let's do it. Um, <laughs> and so I did, and <laughs> it absolutely blew my mind, the uh, experience. And it was uh, way beyond anything that I had experienced with... Uh, LSD mm-hmm. or mushrooms or what have you, um, and it actually was very scary, very coherent, and and quite clearly nothing that was going to get me a PhD from Stanford University. <laughs> at, at least that's what I thought at the time. Right. So, uh, you know, how did I get into shamanism? Well, I'll tell you very slowly because not only did I do two years field work living with these people who placed shamanism at the center of their uh, way of uh, knowing the world, which is what I was studying. Um, but I turned my back on it, didn't put it into my Ph.D. dissertation, became a doctor in anthropology, and then got a job working for a Swiss NGO in favor of, for running projects in favor of indigenous Amazonian people and the territorial rights, and did another six years as an, an ecological activist uh, talking about how Amazonian Indians use their territories rationally, all the time soft-pedaling the shamanism part hmm. that the Indians themselves um, put at center stage, one could say. Right, right. So, you know, I kind of like backed into it really slowly. I knew that there was something there, but I knew that it was something that was dangerous for my career that wouldn't really serve fundraising here in Europe uh, very well in the late 80s and early 90s. I mean, you know, the whole, uh, at that point, uh, the argument that I was making was, if you want to save the rainforest, the best way to do it is to help Indian people get land titles to their territories because they're the only ones who know how to use their lands rationally. Mm. Well, in other words, without destroying it. You know, I think that that argument uh, is essentially correct, but it certainly didn't mention that Though they may use their forests uh, rationally, the way that they relate to the forest, um, you know, is actually pretty irrational in the sense that it has to do with dreams, visions, hallucinations, and so forth. Right, the whole animistic idea as opposed to the rational reductionist thing that we got going in the West for the most part. Yeah, and so... You know, it, it took me, I don't know, at least 10 years of contact with these people and then, you know, writing about it and thinking about it um, to, to wrap my mind around just the, the, the basic ideas as to what was going on. Because I should say that even though um, I had been interested by hallucinogenic substances before going to the Amazon, um, you know, 
I didn't believe in spirits. I didn't believe that you could communicate with plants and animals. I mean, you know, I was just a, a, a materialist rationalist. All right, so... So maybe you can tell us a little bit about what happened after that first experience. Obviously, it was something that was profound, and like you said, it blew you away. So to, maybe you can relate a little bit about what happened and then what you made of it afterwards. Well, you know, uh, uh, I, I tried ayahuasca a total of uh, four times in two years uh, whilst I was there. The first time, actually, nothing happened, but the second time was when... Uh, all hell broke loose. And I think the third and fourth times, I was kind of scared, so it didn't take a big enough uh, dose. And essentially, turned my back on the whole thing. Besides, you know, one should say that there's not just ayahuasca, and there's uh, one thing that affected me pretty um, uh, deeply was also tobacco paste. Oh, and right. the way that they prepare tobacco down there, this is uh, not the same kind of stuff as the, uh, the, the, the cigarettes that people know about. Um, you know, this is the original plant that comes from the Amazon, uh, Nicotiana rustica. It contains 18 times more uh, nicotine than blonde tobacco. And they um, prepare it in different ways. One of the ways is to make a kind of jam out of it, so they boil it down slowly mm -hmm. with this kind of syrup. And then um, you, you lick this stuff, and essentially it's so strong, it not only makes your head spin, I mean, it's, it's a hallucinogenic substance in its own right. Wow. Um, so, um, you know, I mean, one whole thing that became clear to me on tobacco, for example, was, um, okay, okay, well, uh, here you are studying how uh, Amazonian Indians relate to their territory, but what about you, white boy? How do you relate to you? What is your territory? Hmm. You know, you grew up in Canada and Switzerland. You've been educated in California. Now you're here in Peru. Um, what do you, what do you, where are you going to live? Right. Um, and so it was during one of those tobacco uh, trances um, that it became clear to me that I had to um, make a decision, and I decided there and then to come back to Switzerland and to make a life here. So you know, and here I am. Uh, what is it? 18 years later, still uh, doing it. Right. So um, you know, over the two years. Uh, fieldwork experience in the Peruvian Amazon, I had a, a certain number of experiences with these shamanic plants that uh, deeply influenced me. But it was so deep that it, uh, getting back to ayahuasca, it just took years to integrate. And, and uh, you know, I found that, like, getting back to Switzerland in 1987 and talking about... Uh, um, Amazonian Indians, rainforests, uh, hallucinogenic plants, and so on. You know, my friends just didn't want to know. It mm -hmm. was um, it was too weird at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so it was hard. To, it, there was a kind of experience. There was this big, big changing um, thing. It, it mixed up my worldview and what to think about it. I didn't know what to believe because the problem with ayahuasca is that you see things and you know that what you see is correct. Mm -hmm. But then you come out of the experience, and you try to talk about it to people around you, and if they don't know what you're talking about, they just think you're nuts. Mm -hmm. So you have to live with something. You know, that was probably the hardest thing in my life, was after two years in the rainforest, coming back to the Western world and living actually in the suburbs, the rural suburbs of Switzerland. Right. It's a beautiful postcard place. 
we got supermarkets not too far away, and it's very, very normal, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so there you are, standing in a queue in a supermarket and uh, thinking, like in Ashaninka, wait, where, where do all these products come from? Uh, what are these bits of paper that people give the cashier to purchase them? Uh, what's going on here? <laughs> and you look around and you realize that everybody thinks it's perfectly normal, you know, to spend your life working to get money, to go down to the store and buy products that you don't know where they come from. Ah, so this is normality. Hmm. This is the world that I come from. So, um, but I don't think this is normal anymore. This is, this seems pretty weird, actually. Um, so how do I live with that? How do I get back into my world here and, uh, and make it mine again and, you know, feel, uh, at ease with it? Right. Um, well, that took a long time, too. And, um, you know, I lost some friends on the way because as you try to reintegrate uh, on this end and you keep on talking about the Amazon and the Indians and the ayahuasca and so forth, people think, oh, man, there he goes again. Right. You know, you get, you, you get boring, I guess. Anyway, that, that's where writing was good for me because um, at least with writing, you sit down with your own ideas and you don't necessarily need to bore anybody with them and you can just work on them mm. and, and try to make sense of them. Right. So um, I'd written a couple of little books in French before sitting down in uh, 1993 and um, starting to work on The Cosmic Serpent. And that was the book that uh, allowed me to uh, establish parallels between what shamans are talking about uh, when they describe their visions and their conclusions from what they get out of the visions and what molecular biologists are discovering uh, and have been discovering over the last decades in their labs, Um, specifically what shamans say about the essences or spirits that are common to all life forms um, uh, correspond on numerous levels with what scientists say um, about DNA molecules that are also common to all life forms. So that was a kind of startling uh, discovery um, that I made in a little office uh, in the sticks of Switzerland and uh, realizing that, well, there could well be um, parallel paths here of uh, of human inquiry, essentially, and that we do have concepts on the rational side of the equation that um, correspond to what indigenous shamans are talking about. So mm-hmm. at that point, it became possible for the, the rationalist in me to start, you know, translating what these uh, indigenous shamans have been talking about. Right. And, you know, actually writing The Cosmic Serpent, if you look at the bibliography, you'll see that I, uh, to, to, to be able to get a handle on shamanism, I had to first get a handle on molecular biology. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that means just spending, uh, well, years reading um, scientific texts, uh, which is a, actually, you know, the, the way that you train as a shaman is you go into isolation and you consume hallucinating doses of psychoactive plants. Well, in my case, I went into isolation and, and consumed hallucinating quantities of scientific texts. Um, <laughs> the same effect, huh? and, and actually, understanding uh, molecular biologists is more difficult than um, understanding forest tribes. Mm-hmm. I mean, they speak a pretty weird language. Um, so, um, so there we go. You can see that this is a, a long 
task to, to get to that right. point of um, trying to understand just what's going on. And essentially, by by uh, putting oneself in front of the, the mystery of shamanism, one is also putting oneself in front of the mystery of biology and, in particular, the human brain and consciousness. Hmm. You know, if you want to understand um, what is going on, um, in with these um, uh, visions, hallucinations, communication with other species. Well, I, I think uh, that you've got to look into how the brain works, how the mind might work, how consciousness comes out of the uh, uh, three pounds of gray fleshy matter inside mm-hmm. our skulls. Mm-hmm. You know, what actually goes on at the molecular level uh, when um, ayahuasca gets into your body or LSD gets into your body um, and, and actually to discover that the, there's so much more that we don't know about ourselves than we actually do know. Right. Um, and that's what's interesting. Yeah, it's amazing. This, uh, uh, and, and maybe we could talk a little bit more about it uh, for the last few minutes here, but th- this idea that... you your hypothesis of sort of a hidden intelligence um, within, I don't know, the DNA of everything, of all living things maybe, that somehow is communicating and that somehow ayahuasca perhaps, as you mentioned, is maybe like a key or something that opens the door, unlocks something in the brain that, that, that allows it then to, to, to communicate with these things. Is that uh, Maybe you could talk more about this intelligence, this, the, the, the way that you think maybe this communication is happening. Well, a couple of things. Uh, the, I just start talking about the, the hidden part uh, that you bring up, um, just to state that I'm far from alone on that one, mm-hmm. with namely the Ashanika people themselves, when they talk about uh, the spirits in nature, they don't use the word spirit. Spirit is actually a Latin word that uh, means breath originally. Okay. And so th- that's a pretty European concept. The, the word that the uh, Ashanika use in their own language to call what anthropologists have translated as spirits um, is maninkari, and this word in Ashanika means those who are hidden. And so what the Ashanika people say is these uh, entities or beings that are hidden, um, you don't usually see them with your normal eyes. But when you take ayahuasca or tobacco, then you can see them. Hmm. And uh, they are the ones that are behind all life forms. And the maninkari um, are the same for the hummingbird, the otter, uh, the tree, or the human being. Um, and yeah, they have their, their own agenda. And we can start picking up on, on what's actually going on in these states of modified consciousness. That's the Ashaninka, and indeed the the indigenous Amazonian point of view uh, on the matter. You can get to some some pre-Socratic Greeks like Heraclitus, who Mm -hmm. was living Mm -hmm. 2,500 years ago, and um, he said, nature likes to hide. Um, So there are all kinds of, uh, well, one could call them pre-rationalist or animist uh, folks um, that have been underlining this... um, hidden uh, part of the essences of life for a long time. So so is, is it, so it's kind of like, in, in other words, it's, it's a real thing that there's a sort of uh, invisible world that supports the visible one. 
Well, I guess it depends what you mean by real, but, um, you know, uh, at this point, I'm convinced that that is the case, mm -hmm. and I've been directing my research along those lines, and I can't say that I've run into much um, data that contradicts it. Okay. Um, but actually, you know, proving that statement is a really rough one. Right, right. Um, so uh, I think also that um, there are um, questions that intrigue us because they uh, concern us, like uh, questions of the origins of life, mm -hmm. um, but that, that can't be demonstrated conclusively uh, one way or another. And I think that we've just got to put up with that. <laughs> you know, um, uh, there, the, the whole domain of, of science um, is something that, that I value, um, even though I think one should recognize its, its limits. Right, and there are some things that, that can be measured and, and determined with uh, precision. Other things um, can't. I mean, you know, the whole debate about um, uh, evolution versus intelligent design, for example, which is going on really heavily in the state right, um, at, right now. Interestingly enough, it isn't happening in Europe. I mean, there's no lack of uh, Christians and scientists in Europe, but that debate is just not happening here. Interesting. Um, it is happening uh, in the States, and everybody gets hot and heavy about it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or are convinced that uh, life is due to uh, chance and necessity, or convinced that it's due to an, an intelligent designer, and then people just argue their position into the ground. But actually, I don't think that uh, either position can be um, demonstrated conclusively. Hmm. I think that, you know, the, the presence of an intelligence that is uh, guiding life or its absence is, is not something that it can be uh, quantified and demonstrated. You know, intelligence is uh, non-physical. Um, I mean, it may arise out of physical neurons firing, but uh, intelligence itself is not something that is um, physical. So it, it can't really be um, put in a test tube, measured, and, you know, brandished as proof or absence of proof. Right. You know, you know there are some things that are um, of the domain of belief and other things that are of the domain of what can be demonstrated. And I, I think that they're, they're somewhat uh, different things. And for me, it's not, a, not actually a... I, I would associate the ayahuasca sphere with something that has to do more with the non-material, pure consciousness, understanding, stuff that, you know, I mean, if you have a, a, um, a rich ayahuasca session and you have all kinds of ideas and then you rush out of that session and you want to prove to the world that your ideas uh, that you just got are uh, real and important, mm -hmm. you're going to have a hard time. What you can do is um, take your time, leave that session, and then uh, write your ideas down, keep them, work with them, and then some, and then take the time it takes, often very long, to download those ideas into this here material world. Right, right. And I think you'll often find that you can't just download it wholesale, unfortunately. You know, and it takes uh, it takes a lot of work. Hmm. Um, and that's our fate. <laughs> very interesting. Yeah. You know, when you were mentioning 
this idea of the conflict between intelligent design and uh, and or random chance or whatever it, it it reminds me of a couple of things actually in in uh, uh, in in the book the cosmic serpent you make the point that in one of the ayahuasca experiences that you had that you were sort of uh, given sort of a reality check and said hey you're just a human and you guys think you have everything figured out but mm-hmm. but you're really not running the show and mm-hmm. and that uh that's something that a uh, sort of a common experience with, with maybe with ayahuasca and also and also with uh, uh, with psilocybin for sure. It's something that I've experienced personally, actually. This sort of uh, um, uh, putting you in your, uh, off the pedestal, so, so so to speak. I think that this business of stepping off the pedestal, not taking oneself too seriously, relaxing one's grip on this uh, this business of wanting to be right. Mm-hmm. You know, and wanting to be number one, and and wanting to be the one who believes that your ideas are better than everybody else's, and that everybody should think like you. You know, just letting all that stuff go. Oh, and, and opening up a little bit to the uh, the fact that there's um, a lot of mystery, mm-hmm. and that it's uh, actually pretty beautiful, and that it's already um, uh, pretty good to be alive, and pretty exhilarating. All the things that are going on. Uh, you know, it's actually a, um, I find it a, uh, a better path. Mm. I mean, it's, it's lighter, it's more uh, joyful, more interesting, more relaxed, uh, I don't know, more upbeat, finally. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and, and really, where is it written, large, you know, that, that, that the talking monkeys are supposed to have the, the answers to every question in the universe and beyond. I mean, Just look at a lot of the answers that the talking monkeys have come up with. I mean, you know, <laughs> just a couple centuries ago, the idea was that we were at the center of the universe. Right. And, you know, if you didn't believe it, you were excommunicated. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty monkey-brained idea. And um, there's a, <laughs> a lot of them that are still out there. I mean, you know, for example, the idea that our species is so much... Uh, uh, different from all the other species. There's another one that's going to look pretty, uh, pretty hairy in a couple of centuries. <laughs> no doubt about it. No doubt. So, well, meanwhile, my kids are about to go to school here <laughs> because it's 7:30 in the morning. So that's right. Unfortunately, it'd be nice to keep on talking, but I've got to, got to go and uh, get them ready. All right. Well, look, uh, we uh, we sort of planned on it being a relatively short interview, and. Uh, Hopefully we can get a chance to do it again in the future and spend a little bit more time with you. I know that my listeners are going to be like, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe you didn't have more time with him." But uh, we'll, uh, we'll 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 be sure to stay in touch and hopefully we can do it again, Jeremy. All right, that'd be a pleasure, Mike. Thanks a lot. Hey, thanks uh, uh, for sure for spending the time with us, and we appreciate all the work that you've done. And uh, uh, we'll talk to you in the future. Okay. All right. Thanks, thanks. Jeremy. Take care. Okay. Bye bye. All right. All right, everybody, Dr. Jeremy Narby uh, coming to us live from Switzerland. As I said, we'll try to get Dr. Narby on the program again in the future and spend a little bit more time with him, okay? All right, back in a few minutes. Let me get some things taken care of here. We'll figure out how we're going to handle the rest of the show, and uh, we'll come back and probably have the guys from Yachai on the line in just a little while. And we're going to play some local music from C3. I've got some stuff from... uh, um, uh, Derek Jenkins that I was actually looking for before that I'm going to play right now along with something else uh, from Tragically Hip. So we'll be back in just a few minutes and uh, spend some more time talking with you all. It's uh, 12.30 in the a.m. on Tuesday morning, 
September 27th. This is Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia.
All right, Tragically Hip from Trouble in the Hen House. That was Sherpa. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia. All right, I've got uh, my good friend uh, Jeff from Yachai Music on the line with me, and uh, I'm going to play a bit of their music real fast uh, here, and then we'll bring Jeff up. But let's get things going on the right note. And this is Wildflower, and we'll talk a little bit more about this song uh, when we come on with Jeff, but... Uh, uh, it's only been played once before on this radio program, but we're going to do it justice tonight. Uh, this is Wildflower from Yachai. Back in a minute, uh, live with uh, the guys, or at least the guy from Phoenix. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia.
All right, Wildflower. Great stuff from Yachai. And we'll be talking with them in just a few minutes here after I take care of some business here. Some of the funds for KOPN are provided by listener support. And a donation from Mojo's. Information about Mojo's is available at www.mojoscolumbia.com or 573-875-1588. All right, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia. And I've got my friend Jeff uh, from Yachai Music on the line with me live uh, from Phoenix. And uh, Jeff's been on the program a couple times before. And you've heard a couple songs from Yachai already tonight. We heard Pachamama earlier uh, as we brought on Jeremy Narby. And uh, then we just heard uh, Wildflower a minute ago. But anyway, uh, welcome, Jeff, to the show. How are you, buddy? Hey, Mike. I'm doing all right. I've got William here, but we're having some uh, phone technical difficulties here. Yeah, what's new, you know? Work that you have, what's new? Yeah, with us and the phones, I'm surprised I can hear you. Uh, i got a nice connection to you, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I can I can actually say bitch. I'm not going to bitch about it, because I think we got a good connection, so. Yeah. All right, well, anyway, good, uh, good to talk to you again. What's uh, what's the latest with uh, with the band? Uh, the latest with the band? Um, probably the biggest thing we got going on right now is uh, the National College Radio Promotion working with a company called Evolution Promotion to uh, all the colleges around the country. So that's that's going pretty well. It's starting to get played in some various places around the country. And uh, if you're listening and you want to hear Yachai, call up your local university or college and request us. So so it's through uh, through college radio stations? Yeah. All right. I wonder, th- there's, a, there's a local station here... Um, that broadcast. Actually, there's two of them. There's one that broadcasts out of the University of Missouri, the big school uh, that's here. I mean, they're you know 35, 40,000 students, something like that. And then there's another smaller school here called Stevens College, uh, which is a um, a smaller private school. But I think they have a uh, their own radio station there as well. Maybe. Uh, well, anyway, we'll talk about it off the air. But I can contact them for you guys, maybe. So. Yeah, and we're not we're not so many. It was like over 200. So. You know, I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, who don't got have it? In the memory banks, all the, all the exact uh, colleges that it went to. Right. Pretty right. much all across the country. All right. Well, great. And it and it is, you're, you're promoting uh, Sweet Mother Mercy? Sweet Mother Mercy, yeah. All right. And for the people who aren't familiar, uh, Sweet Mother Mercy is the name of the recently uh, released compact disc, uh, the recording from uh, Jeff and William, the two uh, components of, of Yachai. And I've had it now for quite a while. Uh, I even had a copy of it before you actually finished uh, all the artwork and everything. And I've been listening to it for close to a year now. And it, it uh, it's wonderful music. And I feel the same about it as I felt when we originally talked. Although now uh, I've had a chance to listen to it a lot longer. And, you know, uh, music in general. First of all, for me, you know, rarely rarely do you ever hear anything on the first uh, try that you really dig. It usually takes a little bit of of growing on you, um, uh, but uh, but your music I liked initially for a lot of different reasons. But it's really grown on me uh, to something that I can listen to. You know, I can listen to the whole CD all the way through, and it doesn't bother me. <laughs> you know, and that's uh, that that that's that's a uh, there's a compliment in there somewhere. Trust me. <laughs> I, I, I can see it. <laughs> yeah, we we've, we've we've gotten just great response from it, really. People that have uh, people seem really pretty taken by it. Just the um, the simplicity, but the the power to the simplicity too. Right. Just a couple guys banging away on instruments and singing. 
no uh no sense, no uh backing tracks. Everything None of the stuff that, that makes up modern music on the radio today. <laughs> right, everything recorded live for the most part. Yep. What what you hear on the album is is uh pretty much what you hear live. Right. Well, uh for the people who haven't heard us talk before, maybe you know, I've got this uh I've got this recording from uh from Don uh Don Augustine that that we'll play in a few minutes here, but maybe uh, you could give people a little bit of background about how your music has been influenced and sort of where you came up with some of the stuff that you do, and then that'll tie in with uh, with Don, maybe. Sure. The um, the music of Yacha is probably uh, first and foremost influenced by the work that me and William do in the uh, Peruvian Amazon with Don Augustine, who, for people that aren't familiar with him, he's a shaman. He's in his 70s. He's been... Um, working with uh, medicinal plants in the rainforest for probably since he was a child, but um, working as as a full-time healer and shaman for probably about the last 40 years. And he's pretty well known. He's traveled all around the world. I actually first came into contact with him in the States, and then from there started going down to uh, Peru to his camp to work with him. And uh, William, who's the guitarist, and singer in Yachai. Um, he also had come into contact with Don Augustine independently of me, actually before me and William met. And so that was, among other things, a pretty strong tie between us. And right, right. we started taking groups down, me and, and him organized groups, and started taking groups of people, you know, anywhere up to about 20 people, down to work with Don Augustine for a couple weeks at a time. And uh, one of the aspects that's pretty intrinsic to the uh, the shamanic work in the Amazon, which the shamans down there for the most part are known as ayahuasqueros because they work with, um, I mean, they work with a vast uh, pharmacopoeia of plants, but the mother plant is the ayahuasca. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's the main, the main uh, sort of guiding plant down there that they work with. And the ayahuasca actually refers to uh, a vine that's scientifically known as Banisteriopsis capi, but it also refers to a uh, shamanic brew, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. that that consists basically of two components: the ayahuasca and another plant called chacruna. But depending on the uh, Depending on the shaman's guidance, you know, any number of other ingredients, mm-hmm. plant ingredients, could be added to it. Um, also, along with that, within this, the ayahuasca ceremonies, and also outside of the ayahuasca ceremonies, as in, you know, numerous um, shamanic and indigenous cultures around the world, music and sound plays a pretty important, vital role in uh, all aspects of culture and society, but especially in uh, in dealing with with this this particular type of shamanism, the the music plays a pretty big role in terms of uh, guiding the participants through the journey and the experience, and also just as a healing modality. And um, so kind of getting back to your your question, how we came together, 
um, or how the music came together is just from doing work with Augustine and um, realizing on a deeper level because we we both had had realized it and been musicians for and we've got forty plus years of music experience mm-hmm. between the two of us right. and uh, just kind of re-remembering I guess the uh, importance that sound and vibration plays in our reality and music and right. and we both had kind of not given up but kind of moved away from music as a uh, primary focus or even career in our lives for a few years prior to that and uh, it just, it just kind of came back you know right. um, wasn't even something I was necessarily looking to do but we definitely had a connection with the work with Augustine and musically and uh, it's kind of not kind of but it is an extension the music of Yache is really an extension of the work that we do mm. with Augustine and with the mother plant and um, it's definitely a vital part of of the music even though there's whole ton of other influences in our music mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. even just good old rock and roll yeah yeah we've talked but about uh, that before I've, 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 it's one of the parts that I love I mean there's lots of different things in there but uh, you guys get down and dirty sometimes too so yeah it's part of part yeah. of who we are it's part of our right. our culture and uh, so the, uh, the songs just started coming and right. coming and uh, yeah now Don, was, uh, now, now Don is a uh, Obviously, uh, a skilled musician as well. And, uh, for example, uh, I know he plays a number of instruments, but there's this one in particular that he developed on his own that we're going to play uh, a piece of music uh, uh, that has him playing this thing. Why don't you tell us about that real fast? Sure. Um, the instrument's called the Arco del Duende, mm-hmm. which translates to the bow of the little people. Okay. And it's a pretty unique-looking instrument, um, it kind of looks like a bow. I mean, it is a bow, but it kind of looks like a like a bow that you'd shoot arrows from. Mm-hmm. It's basically a curved piece of wood, and going across the, the top are uh, three three to four strings usually. And uh, so you play the strings like you would a guitar. Okay. But you put you put your mouth on one end of it, and oh. uh, the mouth itself creates a, like a resonant cavity that then shapes the notes that are played on the string and creates these really otherworldly harmonics. Huh. And uh, he was he was given the instrument in a vision in the ceremony that he did, and okay. uh, it was actually uh, some elves, or, or duendes in Spanish, little people, that uh, said, here's this instrument, and uh, create this instrument, and this is a way that you can contact us. It's also an instrument... Uh, that can be used for healing. Wow. So he created this instrument, and it's definitely one of the uh, primary tools that he uses in the ceremony. And he, he actually uses it to perform uh, psychic surgery in the ceremonies using hmm. the uh, the sound waves to uh, actually penetrate the body and, and go in in a sort of non-invasive, physically removing of organ type of surgery. Wow. Well, it's cool that uh, that we're talking about this directly after we had... Uh, Dr. Jeremy Narby on on the air. I wish I actually had you on the line at the same time so you could have heard us talk. Yeah, I was I was looking forward to. Oh, I am looking forward to hearing that when you get it up on the site. Uh, 
Yeah. Man, you, you really need uh, some. You need some real-time streaming, so yeah, oh gosh, so those of us that aren't there in uh, Missouri could hear you. I'm working on it. I'm I'm working on it. Trust me. Uh, hopefully, it won't be. But yeah, I'm familiar with with Jeremy's work, and uh, well, actually, well, just finished rereading his book. Right, and and uh, and Jeremy's work is what brings the stuff that 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 you're talking about right now into the realm of the real. In other words, this may sound. Uh, to people who aren't familiar with these topics, it may sound silly and, and outrageous, uh, this idea that uh, uh, that a 70-year-old man was given you know, an idea to build an instrument in a vision that was brought on by a magical plant that has hallucinogenic properties and has been uh, used for thousands of years, etc., with great uh, respect and wide distribution etc right um yeah. but it, but but it turns out that this is the truth <laughs> and uh uh and and on on a, on the scientific side uh, the rationalist side there there are people like like Jeremy Narvey and many others uh who are who are showing that that this isn't all just a bunch of uh new age hocus pocus and that it uh, it's really based uh in what we would call science definitely and and just to kind of echo what you were saying, there's a lot of a lot of seemingly dissonant um, perspectives of looking at things in life that are uh, starting to find out that they're definitely have more in common and are a little more harmonic than dissonant. Right. I mean, uh, Jeremy talked about how uh, you know his connection, of course, and you just finished reading the Cosmic Serpent again. He was able to uh, to find that common link between interpretation in other words we interpret dna through the, the the lens of of western rationalist positivist uh philosophy right and so we see it as this uh double helix spiral structure etc cetera, etc cetera, uh and we define it through scientific means well the shaman is capable of connecting with those same things uh and uh, communicating with those same uh, entities, and he describes it through his lens. But 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 Jeremy was uh, one of the guys, as I said, who's who's able to say, "Hey, look, we're saying the same thing here. It's just a cultural twist uh, that is that, that is keeping us from understanding one another." Yeah, definitely. And there's uh, you know, there's descriptions of of the vine or the uh, the ladder or the staircase mm. that's you know, shamanic descriptions from, you know, way, way, way back when. Right. That, uh, there's definitely a similarity there between the, uh, scientific description of the structure of DNA and, uh, you know, even, uh, there's a, there's a really great book out there called, uh, Ayahuasca Visions mm-hmm. by a man named Pablo Amaringo. Yes, and yes. Actually, it's, it, it's, it's a book that's paintings from, yeah, he's uh, a, this man Pablo. Alvarez yeah, he's a wonderful, it. wonderful painting or painter. And in fact, I have one of his paintings up on my site uh, 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 that I put up uh, for Jeremy because I know Jeremy's a fan of uh, of Pablo's. But anyway, yeah, he's a wonderful painter. And go, uh, yeah, if if you uh, if you look at a lot of his paintings, you'll see you'll see a lot of the uh, the helix type structures, the the twisted ladder structures in his paintings. That you know, there it is. Right, and of course the snake, the serpent, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. is another obvious uh, representation of that. And it's interesting that that the twins, 
you know, the two serpents uh, come up a lot. And in fact, if you look back in mythology, there's the, 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 the twin story is one that comes up repeatedly in many, many different mythologies uh, from uh, different times and dif- different uh, areas of the planet, this idea of the twins. Uh, and again, DNA is a double helix. Right. And uh, so, so, yeah, there's definitely uh, common threads, no pun intended, you know, that are, that are running through all these different uh, cultures. Uh, again, it's just a matter of sort of decoding it. Yep, that's the the great mystery and, and challenge and excitement of life. Yeah, <laughs> or okay, part of right, it anyway. Right. But uh, interesting enough, the uh, the ayahuasca vine often you, you often see it in a, a like a double helix formation where there's two vines that are twisted around mm-hmm. each other, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. wrapped around a tree, for example. And yeah, yeah. I, I think actually uh, Jeremy has a picture of one in his book too. Yeah, I actually have it sitting right here on my desk and. I've been, I've, been, I've been reading it as well. Have you read Intelligence and Nature, the other book that he's written? No, I have not read that one. Yeah, that's fantastic as well. He's quite a, quite a talented writer as well as a, a real thoughtful and, and sincere uh, individual for sure. So, Anyway, hey, um, let's play something from Don, all right? Sounds good. All right, what is this? This is the one that you just sent me this afternoon, and I think it's called... Yeah, this is the one we were, we were just talking about, the Arco del Duende. Okay, and the song is called La Magia. Uh, actually, the disc is La Magia. Ah, La Magia. And the, the, the song itself is, is the article Del Duende. Okay. All right. Here it is. All right. This is uh, Don Augustine Riva with uh, what Jeff said. <laughs> oh, the little people. Excellent. All right. Back in a few minutes. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia.
Don Augustine Riva, and uh, wow, interesting stuff, Jeff. It's like sort of put me in a trance almost. Yeah, it's a pretty incredible instrument for traveling. Hey, by the way, I think we got the phone situation worked out, and uh, William's on the line too now. All right, great. Hi, hi, William. How you doing? I'm great. How are you? Great, great to be uh, on air with you again. Yeah, we got it worked out, huh? For the moment. Yeah, for the moment, I know it's funny. We, you know, there are like uh, certain things that happen with certain people just uh, inevitably, and uh, I'm glad we got the phones working out now because we we haven't had the best of luck in the past. But but quite frankly, the last time it was totally my fault. It had nothing to do with uh, the technology. But uh, but I'll we'll leave that what it is. Water under the bridge. So anyway, good to have you. Great. Hey, Mike, do you mind if I uh, 
give out a website for for that particular disc if anyone's interested. No, in and in fact, we need to give out your website as well. So why don't we get uh, get get both of those uh, uh, things out of the way? Sure. Um, our our, web, our personal website for for the music of Yachai is yachaimusic.com, and that's spelled Y A C H A Y music.com. Uh, and so people can can find out what we're up to, where we're playing. Uh, here's samples of the album, buy the album off the website, all that good stuff. And then the website for uh, the music of Don Augustine, which the disc is called La Magia, and it's the disc that I co-produced um, of Don Augustine's music. That particular website is musicofdonaugustine.com, and his name is spelled D-O-N-A-G-U-S-T-I-N, so musicofdonaugustine.com. You can also get to it um, off of the Asha website as well. All right. Okay, cool. I wrote those down. We'll mention that one more time before we go, okay? Great. All right. Um, so, uh, is there... You mentioned uh, you're getting some airplay now on through this college promotion thing uh, that sounds really good. Are you planning on uh, playing any shows out and about, or are you are you playing in? in are you, I'm assuming you guys are still in Phoenix, right? For the moment, we still are. <laughs> you got plans? Uh, it sounds like maybe. Um, not immediate plans, but we'll probably be relocating at some point. We're uh, we're playing shows uh, locally and regionally. Uh, and uh, look to do a national tour as soon as we get a little bit more backing okay. uh, and the right management situation in place. Right. But uh, we're getting pretty good response from all around the country. All right, cool. What? Uh, let me ask you a question. What What sort of crowd uh, comes out to see you guys play as far as... I'm, I'm just curious sort of about the demographics of who's coming to see you guys. Is it a mixed bunch or is it uh, young people or... Uh, we're curious about that too, Mike. It's... Uh, it's uh, amazing uh, cross-generational response and cross-musical uh, response as well. Hmm. You get everything from uh, people who are into uh, hard rock and uh, punk to um, world to alternative to uh, acoustic. It, um, it's one of the real uh, beauties of the music is uh, it deals with people across the... Uh, not only cultural genres, but the uh, musical genres as well. Mm-hmm. The uh, downside of that is trying to um, tell promotion companies and radio stations where we actually fit in. Right, right. Well, it's good. It's uh, it's, good, it's, it's, it's good. It's good stuff, no and I, 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 I'm, I'm dying to see you guys play it live. I'd love to see uh, you guys do a performance, and I'll, I'll, I'll do it one of these days. Just a matter of timing, obviously. But, uh, uh, but I, 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 I can sort of see in my. Uh, in my mind's eye, when I listen to the music, what it what it might be like uh, hearing you guys do a live performance, and it looks uh, uh, I, I like what I see in my head. So, yeah, the, the music's uh, primarily a live experience, and um, the recording. Uh, anytime we record, it's a glimpse into that. But we love to play live and let it express and breathe and uh, go where it needs to go. All right. And we we just love it. Well, I'll tell you something. Um, uh, just between you and me and the fence post, I'm I'm working on uh, some stuff for the radio show too. Do, doing some more things with the radio show, and one of the one of the obstacles that I have um, when it comes to web broadcasting, and you know, you were asking about streaming and stuff like that, right, Jeff? Mm-hmm. Um, 
one of the uh, one of the challenges becomes playing copywritten copyrighted music uh, over a um, an internet based radio show, for example, right? See, I can get away with it now because I'm actually uh, broadcasting from uh, uh, you know an actual a public radio station. And so we're covered by a license um, that allows me to play, you know, U2 or whoever, right? Uh-huh. Um, but when you start to, uh, if, if I started to do the show on the web, for example, and th- just hypothetically speaking, say I decided to, to do the show five nights a week, right, instead of just once a week. Well, uh, I could do it once a week from the radio station. The other four nights a week, if I did it from my house, I wouldn't be able to play any copywritten music because of this uh, law that was passed in the year 2000. So, anyway, uh, to make a long story short, I'm I'm really uh, going to start building the show around independent music, and I'm trying to leapfrog the FCC and all these other fascists in Washington that don't want to let us share art, you know. Um, but I'm but I'm hoping to to start to to really rely on independent music uh, as the foundation uh, of the music that's played on the show, as opposed to uh, to commercial stuff. Even though there's a lot of stuff out there in commercial land that I really like and I play, you know. Um, but but for but for sort of political and legal reasons, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to sidestep it using independent music. And you guys, uh, I'm hoping, will be uh, you know a part of that. Oh sure, I'm. Our uh, material is copyrighted, but um, we can just uh, basically give you permission, right? Right, and this is what exactly what I'm talking about. With the artist's permission, uh, then it becomes something that uh, 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 that uh, isn't outside of the scope of the of the law, right? Um, but artists that are under contract with Sony Records, for example, can't do that, you know. They can't. They, they can't just write me a letter and say, "Hey, Mike, it's no problem. Go ahead and play our music, right?" Because they're in breach. They're in breach of contract. Uh, you guys who are in control of your own destiny can, right? Uh, so, so that's the sort of stuff that that, that I'm looking to do, and I think uh, I think that's the direction of uh, a, a great direction for independent music in general. You know what I mean? Is to be able to hold on to your own destiny, and and share your music your music with who you want to share it with. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, we'd do anything we could to uh, help you, Mike. We really appreciate the uh, time you've given us, and uh, definitely anything we can do to support. We really believe in what you're doing. Yeah, and I and and vice versa. And tonight worked out perfect. I'm uh, the the having you guys on uh, right after Jeremy was is was, was just perfect. I can't wait to get this one up on the web. I'm sure a lot of people will want to listen to it. So, um, all right, you guys, let's uh, let's play something off of Sweet Mother Mercy. We'll come back and ch- chat for just another minute or so, and then I'm gonna have to move along. Um, I want to play, uh, I call it Cave, but I don't know if it's Cave or how, how it's pronounced. You got it the first time, Cave. Okay, Cave. This is Cave, track six from Sweet Mother Mercy. Uh, Jeff and William from Yachai on the line with me right now. We'll be back uh, to chat with them for a few more minutes right after this. This is Mike. You're listening to KOPN Radio Orbit 89.5 FM. <laughs>
Cave from Yachai, Sweet Mother Mercy on uh, Del Fidelity Records. And uh, I got the guys with me here for another minute or two. This is uh, Jeff and William from Yachai. Great stuff, you guys. Awesome. Great stuff. Thanks. Interesting choice of song there with uh, the incredible amounts of water parts of this country has been seeing. <sighs> yeah, that one, I, I, I don't know, just sort of picked it, you know, and uh, interesting how things happen sometimes, but anyway, alright, well look, uh, let's uh, give out the website one more time here, and we'll, me- we'll mention uh, Don Augustine's uh, website as well, and um, uh, and we'll wish, wish you guys well, and we'll try to get you out here to Missouri one of these days, and you can play at, uh, we've got a couple of great venues here for, for live music, and uh, one of these days we'll get you out here maybe, so. Yeah, definitely, uh, you have our word. When we uh, do a national tour, we'll definitely stop somewhere in Mike Hagan's neck of the woods. All right, great. Yeah, we'll get up for you. Oh, we'll get you in here in the studio, and we'll actually do it. We'll, we'll we'll make a big radio station party out of the thing. It'll be great. We'll do a big. We'll, uh, we'll do a an in studio show or something. I can. We could come up with something really fun. I bet. I would love it. Yeah, sounds good. All right, you guys. Well, uh, hang in there and uh, keep up the amazing spirit that 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 builds this this great sonic vehicle as you guys like to call it but the music is wonderful and and i'll keep playing it here and we'll uh we'll spread it around so thanks for having us on again mike did you do you want me to give out the website yeah let's do that uh yachaimusic.com y-a-c-h-a-y music.com that's uh uh for your stuff but but why don't you give out uh, don augustine's uh again okay that's music of don augustine.com Music of D O N A G U S T I N dot com. All right, no problem. And I'll put uh, I'll put those links up on my site once I get this thing up uh, up on the web in a day or two. Okay. Yeah, look forward to hearing the whole show. Yeah, excellent. Uh, and we'll be in touch. All right. All right. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks all right. So thanks much, again. Mike. You guys take care of yourselves. You too. All right. Blessings. All right. Bye. Okay, that was uh, Jeff and William from Yachai Music uh, talking to us live from Phoenix, Arizona, and we heard a couple songs. Uh, about three songs from them tonight, and I'm a big fan of their uh, their project, and I hope you guys like it too. All right, it is about 25 after 1 o'clock. We've got another 35 minutes or so. If anybody would like to call, uh, the number is 573-443-8255, 573-443-TALK, if you have any comments, uh, questions, uh comments about the show maybe earlier tonight about Dr. Narby or anything for me or whatever give me a call and I'll put you on the air here that's one more time 573-443-8255 and uh, if that's not happening we'll play some music and I've got uh, some cuts from the Meta History Conference that uh, happened on the 12th of June. That was Sunday, June 12th of this year, about three months ago. And we talked about it on the air a little bit back then. But anyway, the the conference has been edited, and uh, there are some real good, uh, pretty reasonably short interviews um, that I'm going to play a couple of maybe now. There's one in particular uh, from John Lash that I thought I'd share with you. And I'll come back and play that in just a few minutes. I'll play one more piece of music here, I think, and uh, take a break. Go get some water. And if you guys want to call, you can get the phone ready. That's uh, 573-443-8255. 573-8255. 
443-8255. And in the meantime, this is... Oh, by the way, I want to mention, too, I played Derek Jenkins earlier. I played a song called Figure from Flutter. And it's a really pretty little song that uh, I'm not sure when Derek wrote it, but I heard it first on Casey Oleonic's show, Blues in the Night, uh, and he has a segment that he calls uh, Open Mic Radio. And Derek played that live a few months ago, and Casey recorded it, and I was lucky enough to get a copy of that. And that's what I played uh, that... uh, uh, Derek Jenkins' piece a little while ago, and I didn't mention the name of the song or where it came from. So, yeah, great stuff from local musician here, Derek Jenkins. And I think Derek's actually leaving town uh, soon, going to Spain, to Barcelona, I think, uh, to uh, to live and play there for a while. So uh, good luck to him. He's a great musician and doing some great things here in town. We'll miss him. So, All right, anyway, uh, back at you in a few minutes, and let's listen to what should we play here. How about Oh, how about Man of Steel? Frank Black, back in a few minutes. This is Mike Listen to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia.
All right, Frank Black, Man of Steel. That's from Songs in the Key of X. All right, uh, let's see. So there are a couple things here. What time? How, how much time we got? Twenty-six minutes. I've got a uh, I've got a nineteen-minute piece from John Lash that would fit in pretty well here. Phones aren't ringing, and I also have this thing that I kind of like to read from Kent. But I'm going to talk to him before I read that. Okay, let's play this thing from John Lash. This is, as I said, uh, a recording that came from the conference uh, metahistory.org uh, on June 12th of this year. And uh, it was a whole bunch of different people from a whole bunch of different uh, areas of endeavor. And they all were trying to answer uh, one question, or they all were posed uh, one question uh, for them to answer. And I'll just leave it at that, and you can listen to John Lash here for a few minutes. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia. You are listening to Our Future Beyond History, weaving the strands of a luminous tapestry, going out live in a global webcast event. We have people tuned in from around the world, many different countries, many different states. But in Europe is John Lash. And uh, he is actually now taking over as a guest. He's wearing many hats. And uh, Joanne is going to introduce him. John Lash is the co-founder and the principal author of the website metahistory.org. Uh, I'm fortunate to collaborate with him on that website and uh, to have uh, my part of the site, but also... Uh, to support his work, which uh, I find brilliant. Uh, he is one of the foremost exponents of the power of myth to direct and to shape an individual's life, as well as a student of history itself. Uh, described as the true successor of Mircea Eliade, John is a lifelong student of world mythology, Tantra, Buddhism, Gnosticism, the pre-Christian mysteries, alchemy, astrology, and naked eye astronomy. His published works include The Seeker's Handbook, The Complete Guide to Spiritual Pathfinding, Twins and the Double, The Hero, Manhood and Power, and Quest for the Zodiac. John has lectured widely in the United States and in Europe. Uh, he is the author of the upcoming book, Dreaming Sophia, Gnostic Vision and Recovery of the Earth Mysteries. Are you ready, John? I certainly am. I am going to ask you the question that we decided to put out to the, to the people out there together. And the question is, what is the single most essential action we can take to bring about a positive future? Well, uh, before I answer that question, uh, I just want to say uh, <clears throat> what an extraordinary experience it is to participate in this kind of event and to be able to, to be asked a question such as that and to answer it and know that there are people out there listening and know that our conversation is being absorbed uh, around the world. It's really a, a, a very humbling experience and very inspiring for me. And so I want to thank uh, you, Joanna, for, and Alan for putting this together and, and the Marian Foundation, the Marian Institute, for 
supporting us. I think that I would like to answer the question uh, in the most direct way I know, <clears throat> because uh, I've been reflecting on it now for quite some time. Uh, in fact, I'll, I'll put our listeners in on a little inside secret here. It was Joanna and I that formulated the question yes. a while back in Spain. And so it's been uh, in my mind now for several months. And in fact, the answer that I would that I would offer is the very same one that came instantly to my mind uh, when the question was first formulated. Uh, I believe that the single most important action that any one of us can take for the future is to enter the presence of the earth and to connect with what I call silent knowledge. Uh, I think that our species has reached a very, very uh, strange and uh, dangerous point in its adventure because <clears throat> since the uh, moon landing in 1968 or 69, the entire world has been aware that we live on a planet. Uh, I'm sure everyone can remember the first time they saw the image of that beautiful blue planet that was taken from outer space back then. And so there's no excuse. Uh, everyone who uh, has seen that knows that we are living on a planet. But the peculiar problem, I feel, the peculiar challenge that faces humanity is that we are not living in the presence of the planet. And to enter into the presence of the planet is, to my mind, the single most powerful act that anyone can achieve that will lead to a future that's different from the one we're in now and that will lead to a future of healing, a future of reconciliation, a future of beauty, and all those things that we as human beings dream of for the betterment of life. But having said that, I, I would like to just uh, comment a little bit on my own answer. First, by saying that uh, I also believe that that action, while it is the single essential action for producing a positive future, is also perhaps the most difficult action that we could be called upon to perform. Uh, to enter into the presence of the earth and touch silent knowing is a very powerful experience. And even though it is always close to us, and it is, in a way, the innermost experience of our lives, there are so many things that spin us out and away from that experience and alienate us from that primal connection. Uh, with the connection to, to Gaia and the living Earth that's now possible to us, because we can imagine it, because we, we see the Earth as that beautiful blue cloud-covered planet. With that connection comes the possibility of regaining a deep knowing that we lost thousands of years ago. We didn't lose it entirely because many of the indigenous peoples of the Earth uh, still retain that. Uh, the wonderful grandmother who spoke to us at the beginning of this, of this program is an example. And... Uh, spoke with a voice and with words of someone who uh, remained connected to that silent knowing. But the problem with of what's going on on the planet, as far as I can see, is that uh, the great majority of people 
have lost that connection, and society for some thousands of years has been driven by people and molded according to the desires and the ambitions of people who have lost that connection. Mm -hmm. So in my view, for each and every one of us, in her own way and his own way, to go back into that connection, to stand in awe and in the beauty of the earth, and to be part of that beauty is really the force that will take, will take us toward the future. I suppose you could say that uh, it's a very mystical answer, uh, and I guess in certain ways I would be considered to be a mystic. I'm sure certain of my friends would, yes. would agree with that. Yet I feel that this, this guy in mysticism and this spirit of connection with the planet is not just a mysticism, although it is that by technical, if you want to put that label on it, but it's really our survival connection. It's uh, it's really the umbilical connection to the greater being that gives us life, and uh, my sense of of making and regaining that connection uh, has come to me uh, through my own experience, through a lot of pain and actually a lot of alienation. We've heard a great deal on on this uh, program so far of really, really solid and, uh, I find, really sobering uh, words from people who are deeply committed to changing society and, and changing the world and, and making a better future. And uh, I have enormous respect for everyone who's spoken. In what they've said so far, what has been said so far, I do detect a certain theme, a certain emphasis, uh, and that is... Uh, naturally and obviously an emphasis on social change. You know, How can we make a better society? How can we as individuals turn the ship around, make a course correction, and so forth? And uh, some really rich and resonant uh, insight has been offered to us today regarding that. But in the context of my own answer, I feel that any participation and any engagement in social change and social betterment is good. It is great. But it may not be, ultimately, all that we can do for the future. Because uh, there are many people who really can't make that connection. And uh, I think that there are many people in the world, and I myself have been one of them for a good part of my life, who do not feel necessarily empowered or attracted to participate in social movements. And I would like to think that for those people who may feel lonely, who may feel isolated by the sheer terror of what's happening to humanity, as, as one, of the, uh, one of the people who's written into us has expressed, that those people, or, or the, the people to whom James O'Dea referred to as you know, the lonely, separated, isolated people. I would like to speak to those people. And I would like to say that uh, whoever can engage in social change should do so, and that certainly is a worthy, uh, a worthy commitment. But even if one cannot do that, there are ways to create and imagine the future 
and there are ways to make a better future. And I think that the something that I've, I've has become very uh, acutely I've been acutely aware of it since writing for the MetaHistory site. A kind of dilemma that I think uh, relates to what I'm trying to say here. Changing society may be possible, and it may not be possible as well. There's always the possibility that Gaia will pull the scenery. There's always the possibility that there will be a catastrophic breakdown of the system. There will be economic breakdown, anarchy, that society will disintegrate. It's happened before. And so while I believe it's it's totally correct and and totally human, of course, to keep the heart open to social change, positive social change, and to do whatever uh, your heart calls you to do in that vein, I would not say that that is ultimately going to guarantee what the future of humanity is. Because the future of humanity, the future of the species, doesn't depend upon social patterns. The the human species has manifest societies. The human species creates societies. And it has produced many different societies down through the ages. They come and go. Some of them are better than others. Some of them, for instance, the the matriarchal societies uh, of, of Central Europe or the societies connected with the goddess religion in ancient Europe may have been more humane and more uh, just than our society today. Some of the indigenous societies still surviving are certainly more sane and humane than our society today. But in the big picture... The human species survives the societies that it creates. Mm -hmm. And so if we're going to talk about the future of the species in the long term, we're not necessarily talking about changing or saving society. We're talking about a deeper mystical connection with the earth and a connection between the earth and humanity and the individual. Uh, I realize what I'm saying may, may sound rather, I don't know, unreal or or, or vague, I don't know, but in order to help myself keep focused on this idea, I visualize a kind of trinity. For me, this is the holy trinity. There's Gaia, the living planet. There is humanity, the human species. And then there is the human individual. And these three factors, if you stop for a minute and you look at that trinity of Gaia, the species, and the individual, you'll see that human society is not included in that trinity. Why not? Because it's just a product of those three. It's kind of a spin-off of what is created by the deep pattern where the individual relates through humanity to Gaia and through Gaia to humanity. In that great pattern, There is an eternal work taking place. And my idea of the future is entering into that eternal work. And so that means not discounting what can be done for society today and not in any way belittling the the wonderful efforts and, and the brilliant efforts that are made to make a better world. At the same time, uh, 
I feel that it's necessary to keep the mind open to look beyond society to what the future of the species may be. For instance, if we go into another extinction, you know, we've had five or six extinctions. Many scientists, including James Leakey, say that we're now going into another extinction. Uh, Gaia has uh, wiped out more than 95% of the species of this planet over a, a number of times. What would happen then? What would happen to humanity if all forms of society that we know today cease to exist? Would the human species cease to exist? No. It would carry on through the connection with the planetary mother. And I believe that in deep moments of silent knowing, in deep moments when we stand in the presence of the earth, either alone or in a small group of like-minded people, we make that connection. That is the transcendent connection. And that is the connection that I would uh, propose to consider uh, in terms of a positive future. Thank you. Thank you, John. Appreciate your answer very much. It is important to be very clear about uh, these things, uh, especially when uh, we're talking, you know, in a rather uh, esoteric or mystical way. John, uh, I have a couple of um, questions here from people who've sent in emails, and uh, I would like to read them to you and ask for your answer, or at least that we have a little discussion about this. Um, a listener uh, writes in, so far there has been no mention of the psychedelic experience and its relevance to the question of the day. Perhaps someone would address the question of psychedelics and their legal status, shamanic history, and potential for transformation. Well, it's certainly relevant to, uh, to my answer because yes. <clears throat> although I didn't uh, mention the psychedelic experience or what is more commonly known now as entheogenic practices, yes. shamanic practices with sacred plants. Uh, that is really the tried and tested way in which human beings have entered into silent knowledge and consecrated themselves to the presence of the earth for countless, countless millennia. And uh, I believe as... Uh, as uh, was proposed by Gordon Wasson and, uh, in the so-called Wasson thesis, that uh, the psychedelic connection through sacred plants is the basis of all true religious experience, and that true religion would be a visionary path that connects us with the greater purposes of the earth and, connect, and gives us the ability of knowing Gaia beyond our conditioning and beyond our ego limits. So, uh, although I didn't come out and say so explicitly, I'm very happy to do so now. Uh, I feel that the, uh, the entheogenic or psychedelic experience is, is absolutely at the core of our connection to Gaia and that it has uh, a great role to play in the long-term continuity of the human species. Thank you, John. Well, I just wanted to say that all right, uh, this is Mike. You've been listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Just got a minute here to tie things up. 
uh, join me. Next week, my guest will be Vincent Bridges, uh, the co-author with Jay Widener of Monument to the End of Time, uh, another really interesting look at the great cyclic cross of Hende and alchemy and Gnosticism. And it uh, should be a great program with Vincent Bridges next week. Okay. Also, Pledge Drive. I'm going to be trying to drum up some uh, support and some money for the show. So uh, try to think about uh, coming up with something to help me keep this program on the air. All right. This is Mike, uh, Radio Orbit, back again next week. Check us out on the web, www.radioorbit.com, R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T.com. And uh, my email address, orbitradio at AOL.com, as always. All right, we're going to finish things off here with my friend Jeff Wheeler and his gang of, oh, gosh, I don't know what they are, but uh, they're great musicians, and this is a bit of their music from V8 uh, C3 on KOPN Radio Orbit. I'll talk to you guys next week. I appreciate you listening.